Well, go ahead and grab a seat this morning. Um, I, I was struggling this morning. There's a lot of thoughts I have in being here uh, with you all that most of them mean nothing to you, um, but mean a lot to me. So I'm not going to bore you with too many things, um, but do just want to say thank you. It, it is really a joy and an honor and a privilege to be with you guys here this morning. My name is Marshall Walter. I'm the executive pastor at Grace Church in Simi Valley. Um, I have my wife and two kids with me here today, so I would be remiss in not uh, acknowledging my wife. Yesterday, we celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary, so yeah, we're officially old enough to vote as married people now, so, and I'll tell you, all of you young people looking for a spouse, um, find somebody that when you say, hey, for our wedding anniversary, would you like to go um, minister at another church for the weekend, and they say, yes, that's the type of person you want to marry. So kudos to her this morning. And uh, our daughter Kay is here. She's nine years old, finishing up third grade this week. And our son Ben is five, almost six. And uh, they're excited to experience new church this morning um, and check things out. They've been here before, but it's been a little while. But privileged to be with you all and just wanted to say, again, thank you for the opportunity. Eric was... Um, just a pup when I got to know him. I ran college ministry for a while, and I remember the day he graduated high school and joined my college small group. I think he would acknowledge he wasn't really walking with the Lord at the time, and so we had lots of good, long conversations, had the opportunity to serve together in Simi, and uh, it's fun to be here. Um, it was January of 2018 that I preached here for the first time. There was about 20 of us in this room, so this is pretty radically different, which is part of the uh, fun and joy of all of this. And I've told uh, Kent and Hans and some of the other guys that were helping out this morning, usually uh, when we have a bunch of our staff out of town, things slow down a little bit. But I showed up and there was a seminar outside, a membership class inside. It's very clear that you guys are quickly outpacing Eric and the rest of the staff here. So I'll make sure to let him know that too. But uh, no, really privileged to be with you all. Thank you for the opportunity today uh, to be here, and uh, would ask that you would continue to pray for us uh, in Simi Valley. We have a pretty significant Sunday next week. Um, next week is our commissioning Sunday for Grace Church of Dover uh, that's getting ready to go out. And so we are, uh, it's very bittersweet for our family in particular. My wife's parents are leaving Simi Valley to go be a part of the plants there. And we're getting ready to send that team out. Pete LaDuke leaves here in just a few days. So we're in the goodbye phase there and praying that the Lord would just go before us uh, and continuing to pave the way for a new church in New Hampshire. And having been there, it is abundantly clear uh, that New Hampshire is in need of good churches. So pray with us, if you would, and think of us next Sunday. Uh, will be kind of a sweet time and a special time and brings back lots of memories of doing that with you guys here a few years ago. And uh, fun all the way around. Praise the Lord, right? He is good. Well, one of the unique challenges of um, preaching in another church is trying to pick what topic um, you're going to preach on. Um, it's kind of a fun thing because we're not in the middle of something. I could not tell you at all what Eric is doing right now. I assume some book of the Bible he's preaching to, through. Um, but I was thinking through what are our options this morning, and that always leads me back to what are some of my favorite passages uh, and is there one that we could unpack a little bit together? And particularly, uh, this passage we're going to look at this morning in 2 Corinthians is one that deals with the topic of discipleship. 
And I think one of the challenging things in the church today is the issue of discipleship. I think it's one of those things we always could use a little bit of a refresher on, that we always could be reminded of, that we always could be pushed forward in. I don't know about you, but my personal testimony is really a story of a bunch of other individuals who invested in me, who took time to pull me aside, to share the gospel with me, to teach me God's word, to challenge me in the way that I was thinking, in the way that I was living. I'm sure your story is similar. Uh, that This morning, if we sat down and talked for a few minutes, you could tell me about the list of individuals who made a spiritual deposit into your life in a way that has bore gospel fruit. Discipleship is the heartbeat of the church. It's critical to what goes on here for its success. It is a necessary part of each one of our lives as believers, that we would engage in this process of spiritually investing in someone else. So I want to spend a couple of minutes this morning um, not being overly practical in the realm of discipleship. I trust that you are working through that and unpacking some of those things as a church here. But want to talk about the nature of discipleship. What is it that we're referring to when we talk about discipleship? What is it that we're trying to accomplish in the realm of discipleship? What's going on in this space as we work through it? I want to charge you this morning to count the cost of being involved in a spiritual way in the lives of other believers. Discipleship's one of those tricky church words, right? We say it a lot, but sometimes it's hard to define what we're talking about when we talk about discipleship. Really, it was helpful for me uh, maybe 15 years ago. I had one of those men that was investing in my life um, frame discipleship in terms of the lens that we view other people through. That in the process of discipleship, we're looking at other people and we're asking, how can I help this person take another step towards Jesus Christ? And I, what I love about that is it, it helps us understand evangelism and discipleship in connection with one another. Because as I'm viewing a person and I'm trying to understand who they are and how I can help them grow, if they don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, if they haven't acknowledged the holy God that created them, if they haven't acknowledged their sinfulness and need for a Savior and that Jesus Christ is the only one that can reconcile them in relationship to God, then that's what they need to hear. The primary way that I can help them is by communicating the gospel to them in evangelism so that they would come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if they've already taken that step, then it's a question of what do I know? What has the Lord taught me, imparted to me? What truth of Scripture can I help them with that they might grow in sanctification in their relationship with the Lord. And so whether I have five minutes with a person or five years or five decades, I want to continually be asking that question, how can I help this person take another step closer in their relationship with the Lord? So I want to take a couple of minutes this morning to just probe into this issue of discipleship, to understand how Paul views that in the book of 2 Corinthians, how that plays out for us in the life of the church. Sound fair? All right, so 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to start at the end of chapter 2. We're going to work into chapter 3 this morning as we try to tackle this. And I always like, I've over the last few years become a bigger nerd um, in terms of church history um, and particularly biblical history of how do all these things fit together? What's the context? And so I think it's pretty unfair unless, is Eric teaching through 2 Corinthians right now? 
All right, I figured there was a you know, one in 66 chance that that was true. <laughs> um, but because he's not, here's the brief history of the church in Corinth, okay? Acts chapter 18, Paul arrives in the city of Corinth and he starts sharing the gospel with people. There is no church in Corinth. Paul's establishing the church in Corinth. He spends 18 months in the city of Corinth, which is a long time. Paul is usually not in a place that long. But Corinth is a pretty prominent city within the Roman Empire. It's the center of trade in the north-south trade routes in Greece. It's also on the east-west trade routes. Everybody's coming through Corinth in the ancient world. It's not the capital of the Roman Empire. That would be Rome. But it's a prominent city. I think a really good comparison um, is the city of Los Angeles. It's a cultural hub. It's not the capital of the country, the capital of the nation, but it is prominent. It is significant also pretty pagan. And so Paul spends significant time establishing the church there in the city of Corinth. And after a year and a half, he moves on and he writes his first letter shortly thereafter to the church at Corinth. It's not the book at 1 Corinthians. This gets a little confusing, okay? But it's what scholars refer to as the lost letter. It's a letter Paul references in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that pretty shortly after leaving, it comes to light that there is significant ongoing sin happening in the church in Corinth. There are problems. And so Paul writes to confront them on their sin, to call them to repent, to call them to turn from this sexual immorality that's going on within the church and to address it so it gets dealt with. Short time after that, he writes what we know as the book of 1 Corinthians. A group from the church comes to visit Paul. They tell him, hey, there is still fighting and arguing and disunity going on within the church. We also have this whole list of questions. Can you help us understand what to do? And so you'll see a lot in 1 Corinthians with regard to this matter. Here's how you're supposed to respond to it. It's an instruction manual for the church that they would unpack that. Paul is able to go and visit the church after he writes 1 Corinthians, and Paul refers to that later in 2 Corinthians as being a painful visit. That despite two letters and time with them, they are still struggling. They are not getting along. There is still sin going on. And he comes to rebuke what's happening in the church and again to call them to repent. He comes to confront them on their sin and they don't respond well. They don't repent. They don't turn from their way. He's shamed. He's shunned by the church. He, he leaves with things unresolved and unsettled. And so he writes what is known as the severe letter, the third letter, not 2 Corinthians. I know it's confusing, but the third letter. Kind of a last-ditch effort to say, this has to change. We cannot continue to go this way. And upon receiving the severe letter from Paul, the church in Corinth begins to repent. And when Paul gets that word, he sits down to write the book of 2 Corinthians. And so 2 Corinthians, in large part, is positive. It's hopeful. Uh, There is turning of the church. They are starting to take steps to do what's right. They have a lot to work through still. There are still significant issues going on. But 2 Corinthians starts to articulate a pathway for the church to have relationship with Paul and to take strides to follow Christ. One of the things that he talks about is how they're going to view the nature of discipleship and how that should be playing out in their lives, the things that are true of them, the things that God is at work doing that they had an opportunity to participate in. And that's where we jump in today in chapter 2, 
verse 14. We're going to look at three things today and a whole bunch of subpoints as we work our way through this here. But we're going to talk about the nature of discipleship. I'm going to give you the, the big outline here first, just so you can help track with me for those of you that are note takers. We're going to talk about the seriousness of our task here in chapter 2. Then we're going to look at the first three verses of chapter 3 and talk about the success of our ministry. How do we define discipleship success? And then we're going to look at verses 4, 5, and 6 briefly and talk about the source of our confidence. Okay, so that's kind of the pathway so you can track with me. There'll be some subpoints and some application along the way as we go. But let's start by looking at the seriousness of the task of discipleship in chapter 2. Starting at verse 14, Paul says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. It is a serious task that we undertake in the process of discipleship. And Paul identifies here in verses 14, 15, and the start of 16, that it is a task of life and death. I love that he starts in verse 14 by saying, but thanks be to God, right? In light of all the uncertainty in the Corinthian church, of all the ups and downs, of all the struggles, of all the things that are not yet resolved, Paul is still able to rejoice because he can look ahead to the end and see that the ultimate outcome is already decided, that Christ has already won, that Christ is already victorious. And so Paul, as he begins to unpack that, is going to express his thanks to the Lord, and he's going to begin by a celebration of what Christ has done. That's the reference there in verse 14 to a triumphal procession. It's an analogy that refers to a Roman triumph. This was the highest award that a Roman military general, general could receive in the Roman army. Very few of them were given out. There were many criteria that the general would have to uh, be able to demonstrate competency in. Uh, most importantly, he would have had to won a pretty significant victory, a victory that would have defeated a new area of conquest outside the Roman Empire to add it to the Roman Empire. There would have to be several strategic battles, a certain number of enemy soldiers that would have had to be defeated. And if all that was done, he was able to settle the new area and bring peace there and then return home, withdraw the troops, and come back to Rome. And the emperor deemed his strategic victory worthy enough. He would be granted a Roman triumph. He would be brought back to the city of Rome. He would be paraded through the streets. The city would shut down for the day. It was a day of feasting, of celebration. Uh, they would parade the general through the city from the gates up to the temple. They would sacrifice uh, animals there, that, and the whole city would celebrate for the day. As the general would march, they would cause to go before him all the spoils of war, everything that had been conquered, all of the troops that had been defeated, their leaders, and both military and politically, would be marched in chains in front of him, off to prison, if not death. They would build models of the, the significant battles and victories uh, that he had fought. His soldiers would march behind him. His family would march with him. Musicians would come and play. Incense bearers would come so everything would smell nice. And the whole city would rejoice in the victory of this Roman general. 
There's a dichotomy of emotions that takes place in that analogy that Paul highlights here. That for most of the city of Rome, this is a, a day of celebration, right? It's a day of rejoicing. We are victorious. We have won. Our general has had this great success. Nobody's working. We're, we're partying and enjoying the day. And yet in this procession are a number of individuals marching in chains to their death. And it's this dichotomy that Paul highlights here. And it's this analogy that he draws from as he begins to compare and to help us understand what's going on. Christ is compared to the victorious general. Christ is the one who has won the victory already, that is triumphant, that is being honored for his success. And in a unique twist of the analogy, we are pictured along with Christ as those who are once enemies of Christ, who are marching with Christ, but not marching to our death as believers, but celebrating with him and what he has accomplished and what he has done. Christ is paraded. He is honored. He is celebrated. He has shown his power not just to be victorious, not just to conquer, but also has demonstrated his grace and his mercy and our salvation. That he is able to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. And so as participants in this processional, we are witnesses, we are representatives of the situation at hand. In our lives, in our living, in our dying, we bear testimony to Christ as our conqueror. We bear testimony to the fact that he is victorious, that he has won already, that death has been defeated, that sin has been defeated. There is no question about who will win in the end. And in our testimony, we are constantly bearing witness to Christ and to who he is. To some that is received well, to some that is a day of rejoicing as they resonate with us because Christ has saved them too, that Christ has been glorious to them also. And yet, to others who are marching to their death, we are a reminder of their rejection of Christ as their Savior, and as their conqueror. We are to some, Paul says, an aroma of life to life, an aroma of victory, an aroma of success, a reminder of the party and the celebration, and yet to others, we are an aroma of death to death, the constant reminder that they have not been reconciled to their God, and therefore they are forever separated from him. And so as we consider that, just a, a couple points by way of application for us this morning. One, I think it's helpful to be reminded that the outcome is already determined. As we talk this morning, as we seek to understand the nature of discipleship, we need to see and to understand we're not part of fighting and winning the war. In the analogy that Paul's using here, the victory has already been accomplished. It's already taken place. Our part to play is not to somehow stand with Christ and, and help him be victorious. He is victorious. And so our role is clear. We are not part of 
the soldiers that are fighting to win the battle with Christ, we are simply messengers of the reality that the battle has been fought and has been won. We are messengers that point other people to see Christ as Lord, to see Christ as Savior. Our part to play in this whole discussion of discipleship is not to save people, but to point people to the one who can save them, Jesus Christ. Also helpful for us to see, and a little awkward, I'll admit, that Paul says here that we stink. We smell. There is an odor about us as believers. And that reality isn't debated or up for debate in this passage. Paul just says it is. We are an aroma. We are an odor. It is a statement that you reek of Jesus Christ. And the implication of that statement is, when we look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves the question of, do I stink for Jesus? And we question that and we wonder about that. Or if we don't think we do, then we need to look ourselves in the mirror and ask the question, have I really come to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Has Christ conquered me? Is he victorious in my life? Am I one that is marching with him, pointing others to him because everything and who I am has been changed by him? Or is it possible that I'm still in chains, having been conquered, but yet unwilling to surrender to Christ as my Savior? Christ has captured us. Has he conquered our souls also? He is victorious. Are we pointing other people to him? Or has life remained all about us in the process? And fourthly, last piece of application here. I think it's helpful for us to be reminded that different people are going to respond differently to us. There are some that respond very positively to us, right? There are some that rejoice along with us. And there are others that don't. There are others that remain opposed to the Lord, remain therefore opposed to the followers of the Lord. It's good for us to remember as we begin to engage with other people, either in the realm of evangelism or discipleship, that people are going to respond differently. We need to be prepared for that. And that reality, that people are going to respond differently, the reality that as we engage with them, we have an opportunity to move them and help them move closer towards Christ, or potentially to be a cause of them moving further away from Christ. The weightiness of that, the seriousness of that, that through us Christ is put on display, that through us Christ is either a conquering Savior that they should treasure, or a cruel conqueror that they are going to run from. That as individuals witness our transformation, as they witness the way that we have been changed, as they witness the way that we have lived our lives, that they're going to see and desire Christ or they're going to run from him. The seriousness of that is what I want us to see this morning. It is an issue of life and death. As we engage with folks, as we seek to share the gospel with them, as we seek to come alongside them and help them walk with Christ, their eternal soul hangs in the balance of those conversations. It is an over 
overwhelming responsibility, which is our second sub-point today and what Paul says at the end of verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? Got to be honest. It's a terrible choice to involve you and I in this process. We're terrible. It is a, a marvelous thing that the Lord is able to work through our weaknesses to use us in the lives of other people. We are not qualified. We are not able. We are not competent for the task of being involved in the soul care of other people. When we do it on our own, in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own striving. Paul's response here in verse 16 in considering the weightiness of the task of discipleship is right and appropriate. Who is sufficient? Who can do this? It was uh, 2012, November, I think officially December 1st, if I'm thinking about it right, um, that we had gone to the hospital. My daughter was born early in the morning on November 29th, 2012. We stayed in the hospital that night. We stayed in the hospital one more night. On December 1st, they walked us downstairs, my wife in a wheelchair, me holding the baby carrier. They had sent me to go pick up the car and pull it around to the front of the hospital. We had her all strapped in. We clipped her into the car. And then all the staff from the hospital walked back inside, and we were just supposed to leave. And I remember standing there thinking, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? There was no class we had to pass. There was no qualifications we had. We all of a sudden were responsible for another little human being. What an overwhelming moment. What an overwhelming task. We are spiritually, as Paul talks about here, engaging in the care of another person, engaging with them in a way that's either going to push them towards Christ or away from Christ. It is normal to feel overwhelmed with that responsibility. I just want to acknowledge that, right? As we talk about and as the challenge moves towards, you need to engage in this responsibility. I just want you to hear up front, it's normal to feel overwhelmed by that. Paul felt overwhelmed by that. We're not prepared for that level of responsibility because it is an impossible task if you're going to try to do that on your own and in your own strength. However, look at what Paul says next in verse 17. Yes, it is a task of life and death. Yes, it is a task of overwhelming responsibility, but it is also a task of God's design. Verse 17 says, For we are not like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity is commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul acknowledges that there are some who have wrong motivations about why they would engage with other people. There are those out there who are peddlers of God's word, who are looking to profit from it, who are looking to gain some sort of advantage from engaging with other people who will try to take advantage of them, who are not interested in their pursuit of other people and seeing Christ exalted and seeing him honored and glorified, but are looking to make a name for themselves. 
I think, I don't know if this was a thing in the Roman triumph, but if we were talking about it today, this is the merchants that are part of the parade day that aren't really part of the parade, aren't really there to see it. They're just peddling their wares and making a quick buck on the people that are around. This word peddlers was used uh, at the time of uh, merchants that would sell wine who would water down their wine before they sold it so that it would go further and they could make more money off of their product. There are those that are simply looking to gain from engaging with other people. Paul says we are not like these type of individuals. We are not in this for personal gain. It is going to be costly to engage with other people. It is going to take sacrifice. It is going to take time and energy. It is going to cause heartbreak to engage with other people. And yet, this is the task that God has assigned to us. The same one that he assigned to Paul here, that we are commissioned by the Lord to seek. To do so sincerely. Understanding that it is the Lord who has commissioned us to do so. That it is the Lord who is observing us engaged in the the process. Who is watching our effort, our labor, in seeking to make an impact on other people. To move them towards Jesus Christ. So you'll see here in verse 17, it's not an issue of whether you stink or not. That's a gospel issue. If you're saved, you stink. If you're a Christian, you engage with other people to help them move closer to Jesus Christ. That's not being debated even here in verse 17. The question in verse 17 is a question of motivation. Why do you engage with other people? What are you trying to accomplish? Do you and I recognize the seriousness, the stakes of seeing people either come to know and grow in Christ as their Lord and Savior or forever being separated from Him or not? Are we being faithful to proclaim the excellencies of Christ because we want to see Him made much of and we want to see many people come to know Jesus Christ? It is a serious task, task of discipleship. And as Paul moves on into chapter 3, he asks a very logical or identifies a very logical issue when it comes to this. If we understand the seriousness of the task, if we can agree that we need to be engaging other people and helping them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ, then how do we define success in terms of that relationship? So we see that here in chapter 3 as Paul starts to ask this question of how do we define discipleship success. Verse 1 says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Paul has introduced this idea in 2.17 that there are some that maybe aren't on the same page with him. He says it again here in verse 1, right? There are some, as some do, that need letters of recommendation. There are other people that claim to be ministers of the gospel, that claim to be spiritual authorities, that have a a different agenda that's at play here. Some of these have come to the city of Corinth. Some of these have come with stacks of letters of recommendation and have started to ask the question, 
who's this tall guy? What credibility does he have? Why would you continue to listen to him? You guys have had a lot of conflict. Maybe you should listen to us instead. Not dissimilar from our recommendation letters uh, today in the days before LinkedIn and the World Wide Web, uh, these itinerant preachers uh, would carry around with them stacks of recommendation letters. A guy like me would come, would ask your leaders, when I left today, would you write me a letter of recommendation so that if I go to another place, I can say, hey, here are the leaders at Grace Church in Rancho, say I did a good job. Right? And so these men show up with their stacks of letters, and that's their credibility and the way that they're known and what gives them a, a foothold to be able to talk at the church in Corinth. It's creating confusion, and the Corinthian church wants to know, Paul, do you have any of these? I don't remember seeing them when you were here the last time. So Paul asks two questions, and he can get a little sarcastic sometimes. First question is this, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And Paul's point in asking this rhetorical question is to point out that they are missing the point completely in asking for a letter of recommendation from him. This is the problem, okay? They're asking for Paul to just sell himself a little bit. Bring your letters, you know, get them together. We don't care, whoever they're from. And we're going to take your letters, and we're going to take the letters from these other guys that are here, and, and we're going to do a little comparing, right? And we're going to ask some evaluatory questions of who should we be listening to? Who's more credible in this situation? Perhaps the new guys are more credible. Maybe we should be listening to them. We need to do a little bit of research here weigh things out, and decide what to do. And Paul's point is, you are missing the point entirely. They are looking to judge success based on the credibility of the minister. But what has he just talked about in chapter 2? Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to minister to the Corinthian church? Nobody is. They're evaluating it by some human standard of who has more letters of recommendation as if that would make one of them more qualified to minister to the church in Corinth apart from the work of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. I don't know um, what your baseball background is. Um, I had the opportunity to coach some youth baseball for a while. Got to throw some BP. I didn't get to play baseball growing up. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Literally happened on Sunday mornings in uh, Oregon growing up, so that was a no-go for my family because we went to church instead. Good choice by my parents. It was a little hard at the time. But I uh, had the chance later here in life to do a little bit of um, baseball. And uh, over my few years of coaching, I worked to develop my pitching. Um, I can proudly tell you I throw five different pitches. I throw a fastball, a changeup, a curveball, a slider, and I like to dabble with the knuckleball a little bit. Um, I can tell you, my friends would say, that all of them go pretty straight in about 45 miles an hour. <laughs> so I imagine most of you um, may have a little bit better arm than I do, but the reality is, is that none of us are helping the Dodgers try to win a pennant this year. All right? So we can go throw all day long, but if your arm was any good, you'd be there already and not here this morning. And that's a little bit the point. We can throw all the pitches we want. 
Paul can produce all the letters he wants. These false teachers can produce all the letters they want, but the reality is neither of them are qualified to minister to the Corinthians if the Lord doesn't do the work. So asking the question is the wrong question. Evaluating the minister's success by human standards is the wrong evaluation point. And Paul drives this home a little bit further with his second question. He says, do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? And this one's a little bit more pointed. This line of questioning is absurd. It's ridiculous. The Corinthians are asking Paul, think about this for a minute, to produce letters from other churches validating his authority and his ability to do ministry among the Corinthians. Part of why I shared their history with you this morning. Do you remember who founded the church in Corinth? Who shared the gospel with them? Who discipled them? Who has ongoing been ministering to them over a number of years? Oh, the church wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the ministry of Paul. If we're going to talk about human standards, do we have any grandparents in the room? Yes, willing to admit it? Sorry, I don't know if that's a crossing the line there. Can you imagine hanging out with your grandkids and noticing some behavior that's a little out of line and pulling your kid aside and saying, hey, you really should, you know, this is going on, you really should address that. Probably shouldn't be running around the house with knives from the kitchen. And can you imagine if your kid turned to you and said, thanks for the uh, advice, could you produce some credentials of why you're qualified to give parenting <laughs> advice? Just, it makes me want to slap him in the face, whoever this <laughs> mythical person is. That's what the Corinthians are doing to Paul. Now you want to come and see my letters of recommendation? This is ridiculous. Paul should have all the credibility with them in the world. He's the one that introduced them to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I think by way of application of verse 1, whether you're good or bad at discipleship right now, as you sit here this morning, as you consider your ability, your being good or your being bad is irrelevant in this conversation. We've already established, Paul has labored to make the point that none of us has the ability. It is beyond our ability. He's going to make that point further in the coming verses. Your credibility is not found in what you have already accomplished. It is not found in the outcome of relationships that you have been invested in. Your credibility is found in who you faithfully ministered to. Found in who you faithfully ministered to. There should be people that you have spiritual credibility with. There should be individuals who you have spiritually invested in and cared for. Your faithfulness to do that is how Paul is going to judge success. Look at verse 2. It says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul didn't have a recommendation letter. He had the Corinthians. 
the Corinthians were Paul's recommendation letter. You want to know what my ministry is about? Look around your church. That's my credibility, that I was faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. And look at what the Lord did as a result of that. Their existence is attributable to his ministry. They were intimately acquainted with what Paul was all about. They knew him. He administered to them. They didn't need a paper letter. They were a spiritual letter. So I ask this morning that you would consider who are your letters of recommendation? Who is it? Who could you point to this morning and say, they're a product of my ministry? Not that I accomplished anything, not that it was about me, but the Lord has used me in the life of this person to hear the gospel and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. Paul had spiritual letters of recommendation. Who are you intentionally pursuing this year for the purpose of seeing them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ? You should have someone. You should have a growing list of someone that are being pushed towards Jesus Christ as a result of your life because you intentionally pursued them. Secondly, and I do think it's important that us as fallible human beings see this, let's be clear about how Paul is connecting the dots of success in that, right? Because you're going to begin to pursue people, you are pursuing people, and that doesn't always work out well. I want you to see that even here in 2 Corinthians, who's Paul's letter of recommendation? The Corinthian church. Just want to point out, they are not the crown jewel of Paul's ministry. They're a disaster. They're close to a dumpster fire of a church. His last communication with them was kind of like, if this doesn't change right now, I am done and we're finished. This is not Paul pointing to his golden child saying, hey, look at how good a parent I am. It's him pointing to his train wreck of a kid and going, this is success. You see that? They're still his letter of recommendation because the Lord was at work and because Paul was faithful. And as we engage with individuals, if you start to engage with individuals over a long period of time, there is going to be heartbreak and heartache and people that you invest time in that walk away. And yet the way that we calculate discipleship success is the way Paul does of have we been faithful? to minister to the people that God has placed in our lives. Are we doing that? Because again, I would remind you, you should have letters of recommendation. You should have those that you can point to. They may not all be success stories. They may not all be home runs. But there should be those that you can point to and say, I was faithful communicate the gospel to this person. I was faithful to walk with this person through hard things in life and point them to Christ as their Lord and Savior. You can't control the outcome. You can only control your faithfulness 
to do what God has called you to do in the life of the people he has placed around you? Do you have some of them? If discipleship success is calculated in faithfulness to people, we should acknowledge that discipleship success is caused by Christ and the Holy Spirit. Look what Paul says in verse 3. You show that you are letters from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul crystallizes here the role we play in the process. We are simply messengers. That's our job. We stink. We testify of what Christ has done in our life. We declare what he can do in their life. We point and direct other people to Jesus Christ. Paul says the Corinthians here actually aren't a recommendation letter for Paul. They're a recommendation letter for Christ. Work in Corinth communicates Paul's faithfulness, yes, but it communicates Christ's ability to save. It communicates his ability to change. They are his letter. Paul was just the messenger. He's just the one that brought the news to them. And in doing this, he shifts the illustration from the physical letters of recommendation to say there's a spiritual component to the letter that they had become. They are actually a spiritual work. He accomplished not by Paul's uh, effort or by his ability, but by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It was the effective work of the Holy Spirit that brought transformation, that brought change, that allowed them to start to walk in obedience. Paul does this. He draws two uh, Old Testament covenants together, right? He talks about the tablets of stone, which should remind us of Moses and the giving of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Covenant when God gave his law to the people of Israel. And he says, you no longer have this tablet of stone, but you have tablets of human hearts, which is a reference to what is called the New Covenant, which Moses first mentions in the book of Deuteronomy, but which Jeremiah and Ezekiel pick up later on. Notice with me and you can turn there, you can just jot the references down and look at them in a little bit. But Jeremiah 31, 33 says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Or Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20, which say, I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove, excuse me, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Because the work of the Holy Spirit as part of the new covenant is to replace our hearts of stone that are hardened and opposed to the things of the Lord and to give us a heart of flesh that is capable and able to respond to the Lord in obedience and in faith the glory of what we participate in as the church of the new covenant. That because of the work of Christ on the cross, the Holy Spirit can begin to transform us and change us. He can make all things new because our heart of stone has been replaced with the heart of flesh. Paul says that's what happened in the church in Corinth. You were once opposed to the things of the Lord. Your heart was hardened to God. And yet, now that your heart has been made soft again, able to respond, 
Paul's point here being that if we calculate human success based on our faithfulness to engage with people, the transformative success of discipleship is not something we are able to do. Rather, it is that which is wrought through the atoning work of Christ and the transformative work of the Holy Spirit which embody the reality of the new covenant. What happened in Corinth was not something Paul could accomplish. Christ had to do it. The Holy Spirit had to enable it. They had to be made a new creation because of the work of Christ on the cross and through the power of the Holy Spirit so that the gospel could bear fruit there. And so we calculate success in terms of us doing discipleship not based on what we're able to produce in terms of change in other people, not by stacking up our success stories to somehow validate ourselves in the eyes of the world or in the, the eyes of our own minds sometimes. We calculate success based on our faithfulness because it is through our being faithful that the Lord works to change people's hearts and souls. Well, in the last couple of minutes here, let's look briefly at verses 4 to 6, and they are fairly straightforward. Where then, if we're going to engage in this task of discipleship, if we understand the seriousness of what's at stake, if we're going to calculate success based on God's standards and not human standards, then how can we move forward confidently? The answer is here in verses 4 to 6. 4 and the beginning of 5 say, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. I know this is not necessarily a feel-good message this morning, but I just, one more time, want you to see that Paul is pointing out here in verse 4 in the beginning of 5 that you should have zero confidence in yourself. You don't have the ability to effectively minister to people. You don't have the skill set to change their heart. You don't have the skill set to produce spiritual change in a person. You are not sufficient, is what he says here. You are not adequate for that task. That's not our role. It's not our job. I know that can be a struggle for us to remember sometimes. You are not the savior in other people's lives, and you are not the sanctifier in other people's lives. You can't fix them. You can only point them to the one Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the lane we want to be in. Don't place any confidence in your own abilities. We're not building a kingdom for ourselves. We're not playing the comparison game with other people. We're not going around boasting of those that we have discipled. We're looking to serve the Lord in dependence upon him, recognizing that he is the one that has to produce the change in the lives of individuals. And when we start to turn that corner, when we can live in that space, when we can stay in that lane, then he says at the end of 5 and 6, our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. You are equipped to be a minister of the new covenant. 
You are equipped to be a minister who points other people to Christ, who can tell them about the transformative work that Christ has done in you, that points them to him as the one who can give them a heart of flesh also, that's able to respond in obedience, rather continue in the hardness of their heart that has them part of the procession that's marching in chains towards their death. We can testify Christ as our Savior. We can testify to him as our Lord, to what he has accomplished. So I ask you again this morning in closing, who are your letters of recommendation this year? The most common objection I get is that, hey, that's neat. I am inadequate for this task. I don't have the skill set. I don't have the expertise. I don't have the training. I've never done it before. It's overwhelming for me to think about. Amen and amen. Paul affirms that this morning, that you are right and woefully wrong at the same time. We're all inadequate to the task of discipleship. We're all inadequate to change people, to transform their hearts and souls. But we are all called to faithfully minister to the people God has placed in our lives, to ask the question, how do I help this person, this specific individual, take another step towards Jesus today? What do I know that I can pass on to them? What can I tell them about Jesus to help them see him more clearly? How can I challenge them to to die to sin a little bit more today, to live for Christ a little bit more today? Success of the church built on the faithfulness of the saints to do the work of discipleship. Not to save people, not to sanctify people, to point them towards the one who can, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we acknowledge our utter unworthiness, our inability, our lack of faithfulness, our sinful shortcomings, our ease in being distracted from the things of you. Lord, we recognize that uh, the race of this life is not a sprint, that it is a race of endurance. It is a race of faithfulness. It is one that we are only able to participate in because of who you are and what you have done for us. That despite the fact that we were dead in our sin, despite the fact that we were enemies of yours and far from you, Lord, that through the precious death of Christ on the cross and his amazing resurrection from the dead, Lord, that we can have life and have it abundantly. That we can have opportunity to partner with you in service, in ministry, and in investing in the lives of others here, that you, in some way that is beyond our comprehension, have chosen to use us to minister to other people, to help them come to know you, who you are, what you have done for them, and to walk with them through this life as we seek to endure together. Maybe we, may we be faithful in that this week. In your precious son's name we pray. Amen.